Hello, welcome to Head On History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Today, I'm bringing you what I call a Head On History special. For those of you that have been following the past seasons, you know that I like to break up the normal episodes, the 10 episodes that follow a certain theme or chronology with what are called head-on history special episodes that attempt to bring a new topic that is uh, different from from what the season's theme is, or tries to tackle some type of current event by putting it within historical context. So that's what I'm going to do today. This is a head-on history special episode. Next week, we'll be back with our normal program. What I wanted to talk about is actually the Iran deal. For future listeners, you know, in the year, you know, I don't know, 2100 or whatnot, when we're all aliens and and, you know, have three eyes and whatnot, someone's going to come across these podcasts and wonder what it is that's going on. Well, this podcast in particular is talking about an event that happened May 8th in 2018 when Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, violated the Iran agreement, uh, a nuclear agreement that was a multi- multilateral diplomatic action uh, taken by uh, the U- by the Security Council, the UN, EU, the United States, and Iran as a deal to curb the nuclear development uh, and enrichment in Iran. He violated this uh, agreement when he basically decided to say that the U.S. was going to withdraw. Now, I use the word violation very deliberately because according to all international evidence and uh, intelligence sources, Iran has been following the agreement. It has uh, fulfilled its end of the bargain. Um, the U.S. has not. The U.S., by leaving this, is leaving it um, out of malice or negligence or for whatever reason it, it is. Um, as I'm talking, though, even further developments have happened. The Golan Heights, which is an area in Syria, um, has become increasingly a site of escalated tensions for the past several years. In addition to being kind of occupied uh, by Israeli defense forces, the IDF, um, then, and having skirmishes between the national defense forces of Syria and uh, the, inter- the Israeli defense forces, those skirmishes involve provocation from Iran, provocation from Syria, as well as uh, land that you know that is being physically occupied. Today, on the 9th of May, those escalations have reached the next level. Reports are coming out that missiles were fired into Israel, um, and Israel is accusing Iran of doing those, though Syria's uh, taking credit for it at the moment. So whether it was Syria or Iran, a lot of analysts are looking at this and seeing this escalation as tied to the the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at this history here and try to understand why we've gotten to this point. Um, And this episode in particular, I really wanted to kind of focus on the history of the relationship of Iran and the United States. Where does that mistrust come from? I mean, Donald Trump repeatedly said that Iran was the leading state sponsor of terror. It's kind of a weird thing to say. Um, Where did that come from? Why do we think of Iran in that way? Why are there hardliners like John Bolton, uh, the national, you know, who national security advisor, who's who's really gun ho about about, you know, targeting and alienating Iran. So we need to understand this relationship. And I think history offers a great lens for putting this all into context. We're going to look at the relationship between the U.S. and Iran. We're going to look at the history of the nuclear uh, deal. And we're going to look at the, why the Golan Heights. So uh, to do understand this, we actually need to go back. 
back to 1951. In that year, Mohammad Mossadegh was elected the Prime Minister of Iran. Mohammad Mossadegh was a secular-minded, democratic uh, leader and politician who had the goals of really modernizing Iran further. Iran had been under the process of modernization for a while. Now, this isn't going to be this episode is not a history of Iran. You can actually listen to my other uh, head-on history special last season where I talk about the history of protests and revolution in Iran. Check that out you for a more complete picture of, of Iranian history. I just want to focus on the, the kind of international affairs relationship here. And understanding what happened to Mohammed, Mohammed Mossadegh is really kind of the starting point of all this tension. What Mohammed Mossadegh did is he decided that he was going to nationalize Iran's oil. Now, Iran's oil was mostly mined and dealt with by a company known as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company that formed actually in 1908 and was kind of renamed and given rights in 1930. And so for several decades, almost almost 50, almost 40 years or so, uh, this British company, which eventually would go on to be called BP, for those of you who, who know, who think that sounds familiar, that's because uh, that's British Petroleum Company. This is the company that had that massive oil spill in the United States. They're huge, right? They eventually become BP, but back in the day, they're actually called Anglo-Persian Oil Company. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was not happy with the fact that Mossadegh was going to nationalize the oil. This mean this meant that the oil was going to be run by the government and not by the private corporations. And so it lobbied the UK and the UK got involved, specifically Churchill, Winston Churchill of World War II fame. He reached out to the U.S. and said, look, Iran is dangerously close to becoming a socialist country, which was not true, that they will align with the communists in Russia, and so we need to do something in order to uh, deal with this. In 1953, the UK and the US orchestrated the overthrow of Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh, in what eventually becomes called Operation Ajax. Now, we didn't know a lot of the details of Operation Ajax until the 2000s, in which uh, we got access to uh, some of the declassified documents. But the idea was that because they were worried about him nationalizing the oil, or they were worried about him supposedly becoming more socialist, the CIA instigated an insurrection. Uh, you know, today, as we're as I'm recording this, we live in an era where a significant population of the United States is worried about what's called Russian meddling, right? You're constantly hearing about Russians hacking the election and Russians meddling. Well, the reality is that the U.S. perfected meddling in other people's elections, and we see it in in the case of Iran. The CIA chief at the t- uh, chief at the time was a guy named Kermit Roosevelt, who is the grandson or the descendant of actually Theodore Roosevelt. And Kermit Roosevelt was one of the people who uh, orchestrated a lot of the actions. One of the things that they did is they targeted um, uh, religious leaders in Iran, making it seem like Mossadegh was cracking down on them, when in reality he wasn't. Uh, they worked very closely with the totalitarian monarch Mohammad Reza Shah. And they elected to a guy uh, who was a very brutal general known as Fazullah Zahedi. Um, and this led to a really kind of outright revolution, a rebellion that overthrew Mohammed Mazadeh and reinstalled Mohammed Reza Shah um, as well as Zahedi as, as the prime minister. 
Now, this U.S.-backed regime, now, Mohammed Mezidek himself was arrested, then he was put under house arrest. He was, When he died, they buried him at his property so that they would, no one really got a chance to uh, see him or that he wouldn't be a cause, a rallying cause for people. The U.S.-backed regime of Mohammed Reza Shah was super oppressive. Uh, they employed a secret police known as Sivak to disappear dissidents. Anyone who disagreed with the government got uh, disappeared. On one hand, while the, the Mohammed Reza Shah was very pro-Western, pro-secular, pro-democratization, uh, or at least pro-secularization, he was not pro-democracy, unlike Mohammed Madeh, who was also pro-secular, but he was uh, uh, pro-democracy and not overly, uh, not overly pro-Western. He wanted to really develop Iran's own power. And so uh, this is kind of an interesting moment. We often talk about kind of spreading democracy in the Middle East. It's a, it's a kind of max maxim that the U.S. constantly uses. And we can see that it's not just in the modern era where we invaded Iraq illegally and and overthrew uh, Saddam Hussein, who was also a brutal dictator, but that in past times, we also overthrew democratically elected leaders, and that we didn't often support democracies, that we did the exact opposite, that we installed brutal dictators. So we supported uh, Mohammad Reza Shah for, for a long time, and that bu built a lot of resentment, and that resentment simmered in Iran. This idea that, that they, had their, they had elected a leader, the U.S. decided that it was going to overthrow that leader, and then it was going to back someone who was disappearing people, who was cracking down and consolidating power. This all led to the Iranian Revolution in 1979, in which a coalition of forces, leftist forces, Marxist forces, Islamist forces, um, uh, and the intelligentsia, and very importantly, women and students, all came together and overthrew uh, the government. Now, there's a whole history there. You can check out my past episode on the actual revolution. But what's important is the relationship with the United States. At the time, 52 American diplomats were held hostage by Iranian students who had seized the American embassy in Tehran. These students, they saw this seizure as a kind of blow against the U.S. influence. The resentment from the 1952 coup was still very raw and very fresh. And there was a deep fear that the United States was once again interfering and was going to somehow stop the revolution from happening. So the 52 Americans were seized as a way of trying to keep the United States out. It was a, an act of, of kind of defiance, if you will. It particularly was a result of the fact that the Iranian revolution, this, this group had demanded that the U.S. turn over the Shah for his crimes, but the U.S. had granted him asylum. He was in the United States for some type of health surgery or whatnot. So the seizure of the embassy, in other words, was a retaliation for the U.S.'s backing of the Shah. And in response, the U.S. levied sanctions. The U.S. saw this as an act of complete betrayal. It was a violation of international standards and orders. You just don't target, attack, or hold hostage one another's diplomats. You don't do that, or at least nations don't do that amongst themselves. Rogue nations do that. And so it was a serious issue for, for the United States. The United States saw Iran as this kind of rogue nation that was going, you know, breaking against all international orders by holding 52 of its diplomats hostage. 
Now, the hostages were eventually released with the Algiers Accord, which was signed in 1981. But that tells us that, I mean, it shows us that the hostages were held for a long period of time. And there was not a lot of trust uh, uh, that the accords were possible. And so what we find is that Jimmy Carter secretly authorized the United States to launch a series of covert military actions in order to rescue the hostages. These host this these operations weren't successful. They in fact ended disastrously. Helicopters blew up, there was issues with sandstorms. It became so big that Ayatollah Khomeini at one point uh, mocked the United States, arguing that that even the winds were against the United States because God commanded the winds. And so these these disastrous attempts to kind of save American hostages um, further really you know, further the distrust between these two countries, but also damage the domestic opinion of uh, Jimmy Carter. In fact, some historians argue that it's the Iran hostage crisis, along with Jimmy Carter's botched attempts at rescue, that really make him lose the election or, or lead to his kind of catastrophic loss uh, of the election. But eventually, with the uh, help of third parties, the accords are signed, the Algiers Accords are signed, and the hostages are released. This all comes to a head in the next kind of episode between Iran and the United States. In 1980, Saddam Hussein invades uh Iran in what becomes known as the Iran-Iraq War. Now, this invasion, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of, you know, debate over what caused it. It's very clear that there was periods of time where Iran and Iraq were improving their relationships in the 1900s, roughly around the 50s, 60s, and even in the early 70s. But the, by the late 70s, there were some serious tensions. <laughs> Iran was supporting certain groups within Iraq. Iraq was support, supporting groups within Iran. They were uh, escalating tensions. But the uh, emerging narrative was that, according to insiders in Iran, they believed that the U.S. had given a green light to Iraq in order to invade Iran as a sort of retaliation for the Iranian revolution and uh, the uh, hostage crisis. Now, U.S. sources disagree. There's no clear, co co you know, cohesive uh, policy in regards to Iran-Iraq war. Indeed, at one point, uh, Henry Kissinger makes it clear that they're they're not comfortable with either Iran or Iraq winning the this war, but that they favored Iraq a little bit better than Iran. So there was this idea that let these two countries duke it out and destroy one another. So there isn't a very, the idea of of the U.S. greenlighting the Iran-Iraq war. That seems to be a bit of a propaganda or oversimplification on the part of a certain Iranian uh, writers. The reality, however, is, can't be denied, is that the U.S. does eventually fund Iraq. It does help. In 1985, um, the envoy to the Middle East, Donald Rumsfeld, who eventually becomes one of the main architects of the Iraq war in the 2000s under the Bush administration, was the envoy of the Reagan administration to the Middle East. He went to the Middle East, and there's a very famous 
picture of him shaking hands with Saddam Hussein, and they provided, and the U.S. provided Saddam Hussein roughly about $200 million worth in helicopters, uh, dual-use technology. It had uh, the bear-spare uh, policy, which is the idea is that uh, any type of weapon that Iraq had that were mostly uh, Russian weapons, that the U.S. would provide spare parts for it so that they could repair it, um, as well as they, they provided chemical weapons uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein then used on the Iranian people. The upwards of 200,000 Iranians died in that war. And there's no denying that the U.S. had a hand in it. While, it's, while the kind of oversimplification that the U.S. instigated the war is was likely false, grossly mis misrepresented, it's undeniable that by the mid-1980s, during the kind of height of the war, the U.S. did start to favor Iraq to some degree, and it did so by providing money and weapons, and those weapons were used against uh Iran and that again for Iran there's this moment of going look you overthrew our our prime minister you you're now involved in uh, you know this war and you're supporting our enemy and you're leading to the deaths of our people this is a problem with us now in addition to supporting Saddam the U.S backed several Iranian factions working against the Iranian revolutionary government. The CIA maintained a contact with a guy named Shapur uh, Bakhter. Shapur Bakhter was a former politician under the Shah. And together, uh, he, him and other groups funded what becomes known as the Nojay Coup. Or the Nojay Coup was trying to give cover to the Iraq invasion of Iran. Now, the U.S. involvement here is a little ambiguous, meaning that the U.S. didn't likely support the coup, but it did maintain intelligence contacts with uh, Shapur Bakhter. So at the same time that there's this kind of support for the Iraq war, this kind of weird connection they still have with Shapur Bakhter, who's trying to commit a coup, there's this massive tragedy that happens. In July 3rd, 1988, uh, the USS Vicenes or whatever uh, shoots down Iran Air Flight 655, um, in which 290 civilians were killed, 66 of whom were, were children. Um, and there's a lot of kind of confusion about what happened. We, it's a civilian plane that was flying in Iranian war, waters, to be clear. It was flying in Iranian airspace and over Iranian waters, and the, the U.S. ship was actually in Iranian waters, and it was run by a William C. Rogers III. Now, they, they argue that, the U.S. argues that they tried to ping the airplane ten times, but the airplane wouldn't respond. Uh, Iran responded by saying that it was on a different frequency, a frequency that it had always been using, that let out a ping that said, this is a civilian craft, don't fire on it. Um, regardless uh, of the communication breakdown, Iran Air Flight 655 was a civilian aircraft. It wasn't making aggressive gestures. It was in its own airspace, over its own waters, and it was shot down. It became a massive deal. It really led to, to the furthering of distrust and mistrust between these two nations. Eventually, in 1960, 1996, the uh, International Criminal Court, the uh, 
took up the case in the United States, uh, while not accepting liability, um, acknowledged that it was a horrible tragedy and mistake, um, and all, and paid, I think, $61.2 million in damages or something like that, but never fully admitted that it was a mistake. But that was, like, another example that while this was all going on, you had this kind of ambiguous connection with, uh, with people who were carrying out coups, while you had this very clear connection with someone who had invaded Iran, and another case of shooting down the players. Another really clear evidence of, of kind of the U.S. meddling in Iran was the U.S. support for the Mujahideen al-Khalq, known as the People's Mujahideen of Iran. Now, before 1970, this group was actually a sort of Islamo-Marxist group that was very anti-American, and they had actually carried out a series of anti-terrorist attacks. But after 1979, uh, the Islamic Republic tried to suppress the Mujahideen al-Khalq, or MEK, going forward as the, the kind of acronym you'll see. They tried to suppress MEK, uh, saw them as a sort of dissident group or rival. Um, and this led to MEK bombing the government. A guy named Kashmiri, uh, one of the members of the Mujahideen al-Khaq, uh, carried out a bomb in 1980 that nearly took out Khomeini himself, uh, the Ayatollah of Iran, or, and as well as a good portion of the government. But as a result of that, MEK became the kind of impalpable enemy of the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, and they they are kind of a, a weird organization. They they're not. I mean, they start off as Islamic Marxist. By the end, they're kind of more of a cult of personality. Um, they have a singular head. There's weird. I mean, Brookings Institute did a whole research into them, and there's a lot of odd practices from like, you know, sexual control to uh, kind of glorification and hagiography of the leaders. Um, but it, whatever the case, during the Iran-Iraq War, the Mujahideen al-Khalq formed what's called the National Council of Resistance of Iran. They uh, operated under a guy named Rajavi who is this guy this, that has this kind of cult of personality built around him. But in any case, the National Council of Resistance of Iran supported Saddam Hussein's invasion. They became chief proponents of it. They provided a force of 7,000 uh, soldiers to be on the vanguard of Saddam's invasion. Um, and at the same time, they attempted a series of coups on the streets. Now, what's weird is that... Uh, the U.S. rightly calls out Iran's support of Hezbollah, right? Because Hezbollah is this organization that's done all sorts of horrible things. Iran continues to support. Yet at the same time, the United States openly supports terrorists, the terrorist group, the MEK, Mujahideen al-Khalq. This is a group who, in addition to supporting this, uh, Iranian this Iraqi invasion of Iran, uh, who led a coup throughout the 90s and 2000s, carried out assassinations in Iran and atta has attacked over 10 Iranian embassies. I mean, this is this is the group that we're talking about, and the United States is one of their chief supporters. I mean, you, John Bolton, the guy who is now the main architect for us leaving, for the United States leaving the Iran deal, is one of the main supporters of Mujahideen al-Khalq. He has met with their leader, he has given paid speeches. He has spoken favorably about them to the State Department. So you see this kind of weird connection, right? John Bolton, the guy who's been backing the Mujahideen al-Khalq, this organization that is very anti-Iranian government, that wants to topple the Iranian government, um, that guy is the same guy who is the architect of us leaving the Iran deal. 
all of this has built a real deep culture of mistrust between these two nations. Iran sees the United States as a country that literally overthrew their democratically elected leader, who supplied weapons of mass destruction that killed its citizens, and who continues to support terrorists that carry out assassinations in Iran, who want to topple the Iranian government. In other words, Iran sees itself as justifiably upset at, at the United States. They're pissed off, and they have their reasons for being pissed off. The United States, on the other hand, has, you know, its own reasons. They see the Iranian revolution as a threat to their interests in the region. The Iranians a rogue state who had gone so far as to hold hostage American uh, diplomats. Uh, and unlike other Middle Eastern countries, Iran refused to fall in line. Uh, it had connections to Hezbollah, who throughout the 90s carried out a series of attacks against the United States in Lebanon. And all of this was seen as sort of evidence that Iran was a was a sort of rogue state, a sponsor, a, a state sponsor of terror. I mean, very famously, the United States constantly plays video of Iranians chanting Margba Amrika, which means death to America, a chant that the Iranian uh, revolution t took up as a result of the fact that the U.S. had meddled in, in their country. And so there's this real serious tension between them with for very valid reasons. The U.S. and the United States mistrust each other because there is justifiable cause to mistrust one another. Of course, the designation of, of the United States as the great Satan or Iran as the leading state sponsor terror is all super, super useful. By having a sort of cohesive enemy, you have someone to rally against. And this has become the orthodoxy of U.S. foreign policy, that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you treat Iran as the enemy, as people you can't trust, as the leading state sponsor of terror, that these are the people who are, um, you know, uh, that, that held our diplomats hostage. These are the people that support Hezbollah and all these things. And it also happens to uh, dovetail quite nicely with uh, pro-Israel policies. Israel has a very tense relationship with Iran because of Hezbollah. And as a result, so you have uh, this orthodoxy that emerges that when it comes to the Middle East, we are, the United States is pro-democracy, pro-Israel, anti-Iran. Now, how that plays out in real life, especially with the relationship with Saudi Arabia, a totally undemocratic, absolutist monarchy, is unusual. It's a weird kind of result of a, the end of the Cold War, treating these people as, as the bad guy. The reality is that We've spent more time demonizing Iran than having actual instances of conflict with them. It, you know, look, while it's true that Iran has supported Hezbollah and it now currently supports Assad, both are valid reasons to call them out and hold them accountable. They have also had, they were, but it's also important to acknowledge that they have been overwhelmingly a source of stability in the region. For example, in 2005, it was Iran, in the 2000s, it was Iran that pressured Hezbollah to agree to a ceasefire with Israel. 
During the Soviet and Afghan war, Iran worked hard to protect religious and ethnic minorities like the Hazara, who were caught up um, in the kind of great game of Russia and the United States. Both groups had tried to create ethnic and religious division in the United States, and it was actually Iran that stepped up and protected a very vulnerable population. Um, in the in the noughties, as the British would say, or as in the 2000s, during the Afga- U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, uh, Iran literally handed, handed millions of dollars in bags, millions of dollars in cash, put in bags, handed over to Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, to help stabilize its economy. They've also been one of our chief unofficial allies in fighting Daesh. I've, you know, it's Iran has can be a stabilizing force in the region, but this is all kind of the backdrop behind this nuclear agreement. Here are where things get actually interesting. So Iran's nuclear program actually began in the 60s under the Shah, and it was funded and supported by the United States itself. That's right, the United States, the very country today that's calling out Iran for its nuclear program, was the country that supported Iran under the Shah when it began its nuclear program. Uh, research. So this is one of those kind of weird twists of history, or maybe not so weird. Maybe it's a kind of obvious at this point in time, um, and a kind of weird hypocritical international stance. But yeah, the United States was actually one of the chief supporters at the time. Now, after the revolution, 1979, Iran showed very little interest in nuclear research and development. Ayatollah Khomeini was very much against it. Iran was kind of exhausted as a result of the war. Um, it was not part of what it was interested in, but it wasn't until the kind of 90s that it started to rethink its nuclear program. And the result was two things. Uh, one, uh, Iran was part of a sort of uh, group of nations that emerged out of that post-Cold War period that were outside the international liberal order. Um, that were with the United States at the center. Many of these countries were part of the kind of non-alignment bloc. They were not part of the former Soviet Union, nor were they part of the U.S. They were uh, non-aligned. They included countries like Egypt, Libya, Iran, some places in, in Central and South America. But these were all countries that uh, looked to develop nuclear capabilities, or many of them did, either nuclear capabilities or de- develop some type of weapons of mass destruction for independence sake in Iran's case it was a matter of developing a civilian program um, and it was started in the 90s with the aid of Pakistan Pakistan and China both of these countries helped Iran to kind of restart its program on one hand there are those that say Iran developed started developing its interest in nuclear capabilities in order to protect itself from the United States is meddling also to kind of develop a determined to stop what was the Iran-Iraq war. They didn't want another invasion to happen. Others argued that there was no nuclear interest at all. Iran itself has been very adamant in saying that it is a civilian program, that it is about developing energy capabilities. But the U.S. itself has man- maintained that it is, it's a cover to develop, to develop nukes. In either case, we're not quite sure what the original goal was, what, what, why it was that Iran uh, really kind of got into nu- nuclear energy or nuclear studies uh, and research and experimentation, but we know that it started in the 90s and again as a part of a mass international uh, 
influence campaign from Pakistan and China in this case. Iran itself had a motto, and this motto was neither West nor East. The argument being that they didn't want anything to do with the West, and they wanted nothing to do with the East. They were not interested in imperialism, they were not interested in uh, expanding Iran's influence or its power, or anything of the sort. They just wanted a stable uh, Iran. And so it developed, uh, started developing its, its capabilities in the two, in the 90s. And in 2002, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, in Iran, this council, remember, National Council of Resistance, is originally, is the group that came out of the Mujahideen al-Khalq, the very same kind of cult, pers cult of personality, terrorist, assassination group that the United States, uh, you know, supported and was also a big, they were the big supporters of the Iraq invasion. In 2002, they claimed to have evidence that Iran had undeclared sites like Iraq. Um, and this turned out to be true, that Iran did have undeclared sites. And so there was this fear that it, its civilian program was actually being used to develop nuclear capabilities. What's little, little attention is paid to that since 2002, the Council of Resistance has repeatedly repeatedly come out with even further evidence going, oh, look, Iran's got nukes. Oh, look, Iran's got another site. And all of that evidence has turned out to be fabricated, that the U.S. intelligence and uh, international intelligence have all indicated that the National Council of Resistance was fabricating that information. The only information that was accurate was that Iran had undeclared sites. Now, in 2003, just a year later, Iran signed an agreement with the U.K., Germany and France, known as the Tehran Declaration, which they basically agreed they would stop any type of enrichment. They were just looking to develop energy capabilities to help their economy and to help with energy resources, but that they were willing to, to negotiate with the international world. The United States refused to participate in, in those uh, negotiations. It was all down to Germany, UK, and France, but it did indicate quite clearly that Iran was willing to cooperate with the international world. And since 2003, there was a series of, of uh, inspections by the International Atomic Agency, and they were, all, in all of those cases, they passed the inspections. But this all broke down in 2005 with the election of Ahmadinejad. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was one of the hardliners, and he saw all of these attempts to curb Iran's nuclear research as an attempt to control, isolate, and alienate Iran. Iran was under crippling sanctions, its economy was hurting, and here they were willing to agree to the international world, to the international kind of order on this accords. So he basically shredded the Tehran Declaration because of the kind of economic sanctions that he was under. The United States had kept Iran under sanctions from 1979 on, and those sanctions had taken a massive economic toll. No company was allowed to trade with them. They weren't allowed to develop any kind of resources. And so nuclear capabilities under Ahmadinejad was really about addressing the economic needs of Iran, the economic needs in crisis that the United States itself had created. In 2006, July 2006, the United Nations Security Council passed its first resolution. Um, and then from 2006 to 2010, the Security Council released a series of resolutions that demanded that Iran stop uranium, process, uranium processing at any sort of level. And this was kind of the beginning of, of the new wave of tensions between the United States and uh, uh, Iran. It starts really with 2006 or 2005, and it goes on from there. In 2013, March specifically, the United States began a series of secret 
bilateral talks between the two countries. Uh, Iranian officials and U.S. officials. Uh, on the U.S. side, it was William Burns and Jake Sullivan. And on the Iranian side, it was Ali Ashgar Khaji. Um, and they met in Oman to, to kind of start having a conversation, uh, see if they can resolve anything on this matter. In September of 2013, Obama and Rouhani, the newly elected leader of uh, Iran, they have a telephone conversation. It's the first time there's any type of high-level, high-administration contact between the U.S. And, and Iran since the revolution had taken place back in 1979. Um, at the same time, the Secretary of State, John Kerry, was also meeting with Mohammad uh, Javad Zarif, who was the former minister of Iran. And this was the beginning of uh, a cooperation deal. Finally, in 2015, after months and months of really vigorous negotiation, the two countries came together and along with several other countries, signed what became known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JPOA, or JCPOA, as many people call it, or JCPOA, uh, or colloquially known as the Iran Deal. The Iran Deal is the misnomer. It's actually involved multiple countries, China, France, Germany, the EU, Iran, Russia, the UK, and United States. In other words, it's the EU plus the National Security Council, plus Germany, plus Iran. And it's massive. It was a joint effort. It took several months. It was hailed as a success by most foreign policy experts and uh, experts in nuclear proliferation, nuclear enrichment. The agreement include a 98% reduction in Iran's stockpile, 10-year storage of its centrifuges, which would keep any kind of further research uh, from, from being done, in return for the easing of sanctions against Iran. Uh, this was seen as huge success. People were like, this was successful. And it, had, it did. It did work. From 2015 to 2018, there was a marked decline in the Iran's interest in nuclear proliferation and nuclear enrichment. They had stopped their program. There was no further development happening. There was certainly no move to Iran's nuclear weapons. In other words, the fear of nuclear weapons or the fear of even developing and enriching nuclear capabilities was halted. And that was the main goal of the Joint Comprehension Plan of Action. Despite this success, the Iran hawks were unimpressed. And in particular, uh, our, the U.S.'s ally Israel was unimpressed. Israel was not part of the negotiations. And one of the reasons Israel was not uh, on board with this is because of Israel's own hostile relationship with Iran. Iran sees Israel as a rogue country. It champions the cause of the Palestinian people. But also because of the relationship with Hezbollah. Iran had been funding Hezbollah for a long period of time as a means of kind of uh, ensuring that it had allies in the region. Remember, Iran is isolated. The Gulf countries had cut it out of any type of negotiation, any type of sphere of influence. Um, Iraq was a, f a country that it had been at war with. The United States had isolated it. And so Hezbollah was really its only means of 
of, of ensuring that it had allies in the region. Now, the relationship with Iran and Hezbollah is a complicated one, and the history of Hezbollah is a complicated one, and one that I'll probably do an episode in uh, a future podcast. So I, would, I don't want to get into it now, but it's important to recognize that we oversimplify Hezbollah as just a terrorist organization. But the reality is that Hezbollah is actually a political party with a paramilitary uh, wing. Yes, you can disagree with Hezbollah, you can hate Hezbollah, you can push back against its policy stances, you can call out some of its atrocious acts from it has carried out terrorist attacks in the past to its uh, missiles, all sorts of things you can call them. But it all it is, you have to acknowledge that it is a political party with a paramilitary wing. And so there is a connection to Iran uh, in that instance. And, and this is where the Golan Heights come into play and why this kind of news coming out of the Golan Heights as I talked about at the beginning of the podcast is such a big deal. The Golan Heights are in Syria, but it's the place where Syria, Hezbollah, Iran, Lebanon and Israel all meet. Israel has been in the Golan Heights for a long period of time uh, during the uh, quite uh, several years ago it actually completely had the Golan Heights under its control it still does uh, it's considered occupied territories Hezbollah is very active in in the Golan Heights Syria has been in, since the Syrian civil war and crisis it has been very much fighting fiercely in the Golan Heights and Israel has been using the Golan Heights as a sort of platform by which to attack sites in Syria in turn there is a k- argument that's being made that Iran is using Hezbollah to fight Israel Israel in the Golan Heights. So the escalation there, that tension, really is uh, epitomized or kind of reflective of that uh, Iran hawk mentality that was against the Iran deal from the very beginning, that was uh, didn't trust Iran, that was unwilling to cooperate, that was unwilling to negotiate, and that saw the Iran deal as a capitulation. That wing is now getting what it wanted all along, and that is increased escalation of with Iran and isolation of the country. That wing, that kind of Iran hawk wing of the foreign policy kind of apparatus of the United States and of Israel is now accomplishing its desires by the violation of the Iran deal. Now, the um, complicated thing is, or I guess the kind of sad reality, I should say, is that the by violating the Iran deal, whether we you liked it or not, it could have been amended, it could have been, oh, there's a different approach. By withdrawing and, and violating it, the United States has basically said, you can't trust us that you can't get into an agreement with us. If you get into an agreement with us, we'll leave whenever we want. For the hardliners in Iran, the kind of Ahmadinejads of the world, it is yet again another example of American treachery, of Americans, um, again, not being people you can rely on, a country that you can't rely on. It is an example of... Uh, the Iran and a long line of things that the United States has done to Iran that Iran sees as unjust, oppressive, um, and cruel, from the uh, toppling of its democratically elected government to the uh, ins- uh, uh, you know inciting of insurrection and revolutions to the supplying of funds and weapons of mass destruction to Iraq to use against Iran to the shooting down of its airplane and to the fund to the supporting of the Mujahideen al Halq who's carrying out assassinations. In Iran, and so much more. And on the converse side, the United States sees Iran as a country that it cannot trust, and that the actions
sanctions, increased tensions in the Golan Heights, if it is indeed Iran, it's not clear yet, is an example that, oh, we couldn't have trusted Iran all along and we were right. In other words, there's a lot of kind of resentment that has been built up and that resentment is now turning into self-fulfilling prophecy. But the key here is that it doesn't have to be self-fulfilling. That There's a history here, that there's a context here. By acknowledging this history, recognizing the wrongs that we have committed, that other people have committed, we can work towards an actual peaceful negotiation to an actual changing of our stance and relationship with uh, between Iran and the United States. The reality, however, is whether that's possible or not is a whole different matter. That's in the hands of politicians. But now you hopefully are armed with a little bit more understanding of the complicated relationship between Iran and the United States. If you're interested in reading more, there's actually a pretty good book by a journalist, a guy by the name of David Patrick Karakos, I am probably mispronouncing that, but he wrote the book Nuclear Iran, The Birth of an Atomic State. Really good book. Uh, it's a bit journalistic and not quite history, um, but it's still a very good start if you want to read more on this. Hopefully this podcast was useful to you and you can see this kind of complicated relationship between Iran and the United States, see why that mistrust has existed and how some of that history is weaponized today and used today to justify um, foreign policy stances like removing ourselves from the Iran deal uh, and so on and so forth. Let me know what you thought. You can hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. That's on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, let me know what you think. If you want to hear more special episodes or there are topics you're interested in, let me know. I'm always open to feedback. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.